Today's reading of the Holy Gospel according to the witness of St. Luke, the third chapter. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The Gospel of our Lord. Dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. For the past three weeks, we have been preparing you and I for Christmas. Here at Faith, we have been preparing. Some of those preparations, you know, are very outward. The beautiful lights, the festive greenery. Other preparations, the ones that really matter, are inward. And so in this inward preparation, we have prayed on, we have meditated on the singular roles of Mary and Joseph in God's perfect plan of salvation. Last weekend, we heard the words of Jesus himself and his promise to come again among us. We've been doing this for three weeks. We're doing it again today, this fourth Sunday of Advent, for the purpose of being spiritually prepared, for being ready for what God has in mind for us, for what the Lord has in store for us. Today we hear those very strong words of John the Baptist telling us to prepare the way of the Lord. And let's not be mistaken. This is not a matter of preparing for a holiday. This is not a matter of getting ready for some time off from work. This is not making sure that all is ready for that long-awaited, much-needed vacation. When John says, prepare the way of the Lord, that means get ready. The kingdom of God is in our midst. And these preparations are not done just for an Advent season. They are done now. They're done later. They are done continually until we see our Savior face to face. When it comes to these preparations for the kingdom of Christ, you don't finish the job and then coast the rest of the way home. Uh, Preparing for our king is a matter of daily discipline, as we remember and live according to these kingdom values, these gospel truths. You and I as Christians prepare the way of the Lord by keeping in mind the nearness 
of the kingdom. Those of you who've been worshiping here this past year will know that we Christians have dual citizenship. We meditated on this in November, shortly after the elections that had and still have so many people upset and agitated. We remembered in the beautiful theological truth of Martin Luther that we are simultaneously citizens of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our Lord. And Luther referred to this, you know if you were listening to that November sermon, as the kingdom on the left, this earthly realm, and the kingdom on the right where Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. We are in the world, but not of it. And we should know as Christians that the kingdom of our Lord is not some mystical, magical realm that exists somewhere out there beyond the clouds among the stars. We know that the kingdom of God is not something that we finally get to experience once we die. Jesus taught us to pray. We say it every Sunday. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth thy kingdom come, in this world, in our lives. Jesus taught us to ask God for the kingdom to come among us, in our lives, in our witness, in our discipleship. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 6, verse 33 Jesus reminds us that we should strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Strive first for the kingdom. Do you think Jesus just wants us to strive for something that happens when we die? No, it's a matter of living in the kingdom now. Not living according to the values and the priorities of this world that the word of God tells us is fallen. It's depraved. Jesus wants us to serve the living God, to love and honor the Father, not just when we die and go to heaven, but in the here and the now. Strive first for the kingdom of God. Seek it. Live boldly as a citizen of God's kingdom today, every day. I hope some of you will remember what we learned and prayed about in one of the sermons Earlier this year, I know it's a stretch for a pastor to expect anyone to remember a sermon from six months ago. Not even my own family appreciates that question. I learned that early on in my ministry. But we talked about the importance of learning the Ten Commandments, memorizing them, having them written on our hearts, not just so we can recite them and show off, but that those commandments of God might be part of our daily discipleship, that we, by grace, might apply them in daily decisions in daily life. We don't try to obey the Ten Commandments as a way of earning our way into the kingdom. You see that, Lord? I did a really good job. I kept eight out of ten. That's a passing grade, isn't it? No, we seek to glorify God with all of his commandments, not by trying to achieve enough good works to enter heaven, but celebrating our citizenship, our radical call to an even more radical discipleship in the world, but not of the world. We have nothing to brag about in and of ourselves. Did you hear, John? God can turn rocks, stones, 
into members of his family, members of his kingdom. So we seek kingdom values, we seek obedience in response to God's grace. And when we do this, when we think about kingdom values, when the word of God has its way with us, and it never leaves any stone unturned, as we said in our confession, with God there are no secrets. And that's not because we let God have a little peek into the inner sanctum of our lives when we confess. It's saying we can't hide anything from God. He sees it all. And when we take that long, hard look at ourselves at the foot of the cross, most of us discover that there's certainly room for improvement. And sometimes some changes need to be made. And that's what the Word of God calls repentance. Our second theme as people who are citizens in the kingdom of God, we understand and do not run away from the necessity of true repentance. John said, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Some people think that repent means you're sorrowful, that you acknowledge you've done something wrong and you say to God or to the person you've wronged, I'm sorry. But some people then, having said they're sorry, continue doing the same thing that was offensive in the first place. When you repent, yes, you acknowledge the sin, the wrong, the rebellion, the foolishness, but then you change direction because metanoia really means a turnabout. You turn away from sin. You turn toward the Lord. Like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable, he was living among the swine and he repented. He turned from that riotous living and came home. And just like the father in the parable, our father in heaven rejoices when we come home, for without him we're as good as dead. On our own, true repentance is impossible. Because if it were something we could pull off, this getting things right and being faithful at all times, then we have no need for Jesus. We have no need for the incarnation, but we do need Christ, the Word made flesh. We do need his righteousness. That's why he told us to seek it. Seek ye first the kingdom and its righteousness. Desire it. Hunger for it. Pursue it. Apply it. Oswald Chambers is someone familiar to many of you. His writings have blessed my wife Kirsten and me for years since we were married. One of his books was a gift to us as a newlywed couple. I'm quoting from Chambers. And I want you to listen carefully to what he says about repentance. It is not, it is not repentance that saves me. Repentance is the sign that I realize what God has done in Christ Jesus. The danger is to put the emphasis on the effect instead of on the cause. Is it my obedience that puts me right with God? Never. I am put right with God because prior to all else, Christ died for me. So when I turn to God and by belief accept what God has revealed instantly, 
the stupendous atonement of Jesus Christ rushes me into a right relationship with the Lord. By the miracle of God's grace, I stand justified, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. And friends, that's not just a matter of theological semantics. In this, the gospel stands or falls. We are saved by grace, not by works. But the Lord certainly is glorified when we do our best to live according to his word. That's where belief, theology, and behavior, discipleship, intersect. They meet. And in true discipleship, when we truly repent, belief and behavior cannot be separated. And then I want to think with you about what we see in John the Baptist and what Jesus said about him when it comes to the nobility of service. In the Gospels, John said, when Jesus appears to be baptized, I am not worthy. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. Now, who would have been responsible for carrying someone else's footwear? A slave. John says, I'm not even worthy of slave status. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John understood his place. But what did Jesus say about John? In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Do you hear Jesus talking about the two kingdoms? Among those born of women, here on earth, in the kingdom on the left, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. But, but when it comes to the kingdom of God, the least in this kingdom is even greater than John the Baptist. Now that seems, for many of us, counterintuitive. In the kingdom of this world, John the Baptist is number one. But Jesus is telling us in the kingdom of God, anyone, anyone who seeks and hungers for righteousness, anyone who seeks to do God's will, anyone who endeavors to put God's grace first is even greater than John the Baptist. And it's not about status, and it's not about glory, and it's not about honor. It's about servanthood and faithfulness. It is a noble thing to serve the Lord. Yet we should never expect the world to see it that way. Who perceived the nobility of the suffering servant of God when Jesus Christ was born? Only a few. And old King Herod, long before Jesus carried his cross, tried to have the infant Jesus put to death. And we confess in the creed, Pontius Pilate had him crucified, and he even mocked this Nazarene with the sign above his head on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So we should not be surprised when the world fails to understand 
our king, his kingdom, and the true nobility of service. Because kingdom values are different. They always have been. They always will be. And they are superior to worldly values because kingdom values are eternal. Some of you were here this last Friday. I had the honor of officiating and preaching at a memorial service for one of our fellow members, Esther Castor. I know that many of you never met her. That's your loss. Esther was one of the first people I met after being interviewed by the official call committee and then spending some time with the church council so everyone could look under my hood and kick my tires. And they did the same with Kirsten. After making sure that I was roadworthy, they had me bring my wife out to make sure that she would pass the test. And then after all the official interviewing that I understand needs and must take place, I came on board. And Esther was serving at our volunteer desk in the front office. Because back then, we didn't have texting on handheld devices. Faith Lutheran didn't even have a website or email. That came the following year. So use your imagination. Sometimes we'd get four or five phone calls simultaneously. And Esther was there helping by answering the phone. I was in a great hurry those days because some of you will recall... One of our pastors, Kevin Lee, had already left. The other one, Russ Sorensen, left before Christmas. And for a while, I was flying solo. I was pretty busy. But Esther, when she was volunteering, always made me slow down. And I got to tell you, it kind of annoyed me. (laughs) Don't you know how busy I am? (laughs) How are you? She really wanted to know. And then she wanted to know how all four of my daughters were doing. And I wanted to say, they're fine. She wanted details. Looking back, I appreciate that more than ever. There have been so many research projects through the years about what's going on with the Christian church these days. So many studies on why the church succeeds, why it fails, who's in the church and why, and who's outside and why they stay outside. Uh, Researchers, and I know they want to do good work, have established all kinds of categories trying to group us and analyze us based on our generation. You've got the boomers, the Gen Xers, the Gen Xers, the millennials. Then some say, well, it doesn't matter about age. It's all a matter of where you're at on the spiritual spectrum. Non-believers, believers, seekers, spiritual but not religious, the church, the unchurched, the de-churched. And some of these studies are helpful. But I basically see two kinds of people when it comes to the kingdom of God. There are people who want to be served. And their most important question is what's in it for me. And then there are people like Esther who are servants who are always looking for new and different ways that they might serve the Lord And give glory to his name. Esther was born in 1930. How old does that make her at time of death? 86. She's a great grandmother. 
And until her health prevented her and she was hospitalized, she continues serving here on the worship team, part of Keynagers, an ambassador. Not once did Esther ever say, well, I've done my time. (laughs) It's time for someone else to do it. She understood that servanthood is a lifelong calling. Christmas Eve, hundreds upon hundreds of people will be here. We will light our candles and hold them high, remembering Jesus Christ, the light of the world that no darkness can overcome. But we're also told in the words of Christ, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Esther now shines like the stars. But I give thanks to God that she, like so many of you, shine here and you shine brightly. I've seen your good works. Others have too. And in that, we glorify the God and Father of us all. Preparations. When it comes to preparing for Christmas, as far as worldly things are concerned, the buying of gifts and the putting out of decorations, some prepare early, some get her done by Thanksgiving. Some prepare late, and you know who you are. You're going to be out this week rushing. And I know a few of you, because your wives have told me, let others do all the work for them. But when it comes to Christ and his kingdom, preparing for him takes a lifetime. It's a matter of daily discipline, where belief and behavior always meet. And in these preparations... No one, no one can do it for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.